Episode 37, Psychological Armoring. This podcast is about exploring the mindset of the warrior, both past and present. But there is a cost to being a warrior. Sometimes it is moral injury or post-traumatic stress disorder, maybe physical injury or relationship troubles. These issues don't happen to everyone, but there are enough people out there suffering for it to be a concern. Humans have been at war with each other for centuries, so surely there could be some pearls of wisdom that can be passed on from past warrior cultures. Surely, past cultures attempted to address the transition of their warriors coming back from battles into the relative peace of their village. I recently stumbled upon a link to a research paper on social media. The paper is called Pilgrimage and Practice, the Body, Speech and Mind Interface between the Japanese warrior and religious ritual. It is written by David A. Hall. As I am on an intellectual journey of my own, I thought I would paraphrase what Hall writes about in this paper. Who is David Hall, you may ask? He began training in martial arts in 1965. In 1975, he trained with Don F. Drager in Hawaii. This was in the old school Japanese tradition of Shindo Musoru. He has also studied Kashima Shinden Jiki Shinkageru and Yagu Shinkageru Heiho in Japan. He now teaches all three traditions. He is also an ordained priest of the Buddhist Tendai school and a university professor. This paper briefly explores the concept of Mushushugyo, which is my podcast's namesake, and how it connects to the religious rituals of esoteric Buddhism, Shugendo, Shinto, and Taoism with the combative training of the classical warrior. At first you may think, what is the point of that? However, as you will soon see, some of the practices may in fact condition psychological cooldown for the warrior disengaging from warfare and re-entering civil society, a topic that has been somewhat controversial in the modern military scene. Hall begins his paper with a prelude about his life at a US naval hospital. He encountered many servicemen who had been in Vietnam and struggled with severe mental problems. One observation Hall made was about the Marines preparing for Vietnam as part of the Advanced Infantry Training Battalion. He said the following, Their training was intense, and yet, while their battle skills in Vietnam were generally excellent, Essential training elements to safeguard their psychological well-being were missing in the curriculum at Camp Geiger and at other military training operations in the 1960s. They were taught how to go to war, but not how to return home and adjust to civilian life. End quote. Much like myself, although Hall trained in modern martial arts of the time, he felt that something was missing. He found that something in Koryu Bujitsu. What these classical systems do is to recreate as closely as possible the physical and mental stress one would find in combat with weapons. I've mentioned in an earlier episode that ex-military folk find this form of find this form of training as closest to actual combat. As a hospital corpsman, Hall had seen firsthand how combat trauma affected the mental stability of some of the Marines who had been injured in Vietnam. This led Hall to look at the crossover between Japanese classical martial arts and the East Asian religion traditions. As he says in his paper, 
the warriors on this dual path focused on effectiveness in combat and perfection slash protection of character. End quote. These warriors sought to develop an unflustered or calm mind overcoming the fear of death and with mental clarity and act spontaneously to the immediate conditions and or threats found in combat. As I've mentioned before on this podcast, the primary training methodology found in the Koryu Bujitsu was, and still is, kata. As Hall says, those forms were not simply tactics for manipulating a weapon, but carried a much larger payload. They were methods requiring a supreme synergy of body, breath and mind in a unified whole. End quote. He goes on to say that kata were constructed to trigger intuition in the combatant and confuse an outside observer. Even their names were intentionally abstruse and poetic so that they only so that only the initiated could grasp their meaning. On a more subtle level, these mind and body applications instilled the psychological armoring necessary to enter and survive protracted combat mentally intact. Let me read that again. These mind and body applications instilled the psychological armoring necessary to enter and survive protracted combat mentally intact. And there, my good listeners, is the gold in all this. If we can have our modern warriors face extreme adversity and come back home with their mental faculties intact, what a service we would be providing. So why does Hall look at religion? Well, to push themselves even further, the classical Japanese warrior would test themselves training or dueling with other warriors beyond their own geographical regions and go through psycho-religious practices. This is where Hall's interest in religions comes into play. Not all fighting men participated in religious austerities, but it is interesting to note that the founders of some of the most influential martial traditions of the Japanese medieval period made spiritual empowerment a key element in the development of their systems. Many sites visited by these men had a mixture of religious influences from Shinto, Tendai and Shingon Buddhism and Japanese Shugendo. Shinto in particular has had a long closely entwined relationship with the country's martial culture. I know in my own school, Takamuraha Shindo Yoshinru, this is certainly the case. Religious pilgrimages were a common occurrence in medieval Japan and often involved austere practices and prolonged suffering. So it is perhaps no surprise that the warrior class had their own martial pilgrimage called Mushashugyo, which literally means a warrior who walks the path of ascetic practices in pursuit of knowledge, or simply put, a warrior pilgrim. The destination for this pilgrim was important. Ancient sacred sites such as Kumano Sanzan, a spiritual centre consisting of three shrines, or Atago-san Daigongen, located on Mount Otago just north of Kyoto, the Buddhist temples Hozioin and Jufukuji, and finally mountain retreats such as Sogokatani, a valley at the top of Mount Karama, just below Karama Dera Temple, were examples. It is the journey itself, rather than the destination, that was important for the pilgrim. The practice of Shugendo was also highly influential in what the Musha Shugyo would look like. The warrior on Mushashugyo would incorporate the Shugendo practice of integrating the absolute with the relative, the metaphysical with the physical. 
This integration meant that not only was the original destination of the pilgrimage seen as a sacred space, so was the path itself. Pilgrims of all social classes, including many warriors undergoing Mushashugyo, expected some sort of rebirth and magical transformation to take place during their journey through sacred space. The second feature of the sacred space concept was the mandala. This was known as the place of awakening. Mandalas are used to take a person into a sacred space physically and mentally. To accomplish this, he moves physically and psychologically from the outside to the inside of the mandala. At the center of the space is an altar where the divine presence will be summoned. Take a moment to think about this if you practice Gendai Budo or contemporary Japanese martial arts such as Aikido, Judo or Karate. Think about the rituals you go through before the start of a class. Bowing at the entrance of the dojo, changing into your kekogi, bowing before entering the mat space. Perhaps you also bow to the front wall and your sensei. Then you begin practice. This in itself is a conditioning process, getting your mind into the correct space for training. <clears throat> After the medieval religious practitioner has merged with the divine, a disassociation process begins. The person withdraws from the merging of self and the divine and begins to return to the mundane world. This involves a reversal of the initial steps enabling a cooldown of sacred heat and a return to a normal state of consciousness. Again, think about Gendai Budo. Often the process here is also reversed. First bowing to the front in the sensei, then bowing off the mat, getting changed and bowing as you leave the dojo. What these medieval priests understood about going through these rites is that one must do it using the three mysteries of body, speech, and mind. Body requires the practitioner to assume specific postures. The second, speech encourages correct breath control and precise utterance of mantra. The third, mind, entails specific visualization during meditation. So with that in mind, let's return to the warrior class of the time. Paul writes this. The Bushi founders travelled around the country training and duelling to improve their martial skills. They engaged in immersive body, speech, mind, psycho-religious practices of the pilgrimage and mandala to obtain advantage when facing death in the killing ground. However, while the external purpose was success in combat, the more subtle inner purpose was preservation and improvement of mental stability and character. These two goals reinforced each other. End quote. Egolessness, or muga, or selflessness, buga, must be able to be obtained in an instant to enable success in combat and ultimately leads to life-preserving acts of compassion. Let's unpack that for a moment. When I read excerpts such as this, I immediately get excited. The feudal Japanese warriors, at least the ones who created a lasting legacy, were training both their physical skill in combat and mental stability and character. The ideal situation being that they can act in an egoless and selfless manner. If you want to talk about warrior mindset, this is getting right to the heart of things. Paul continues. It is clear that, along with their martial ordeals, many founders on Mushashugyo participated in intense rites, similar to those found in Juhachiro Shiki and Gomaku Shiki, which are manuals of rites from the Tendai and Shingon sects of Buddhism. They developed innovative kata, which became the main combative repertoire of their schools. How did they integrate that experience into their teaching methodologies? End quote. 
Details of the practice and the intuited strategies were transmitted orally, this is known as kuden, to initiated disciples. So they are, they're not really well documented. The two common ways to transmit martial and psycho-religious influence to succeeding generations during the medieval period was to have the disciples undergo the same ordeals as those of the founder, or a more practical and subtle approach was to incorporate the pedagogy directly into the execution of kata training in the early Bujitsu dojo. The construction of small sacred spaces known as dojo involved an altar that represented the sacred seat of the Shinto Kami, or Buddhist deity, from which the secrets of the tradition flowed from the divine. Large martial arts dojo, which could accommodate 10 or more practitioners for daily training, were not common until the mid to late Edo period. These dojo allowed the practitioner to move from the mundane world outside, through the building threshold, into the physical space, and ultimately into the sacred space the dojo proper. There the practitioner ultimately united with the divine presence at the centre of the martial mandala. Warrior etiquette, or reigi saho, inside the dojo required an increasing elevation of psycho-physical parameters. This is combative awareness, controlled volition, and other factors to begin before entering the sacred space. As seen today in koru bujitsu, before each kata set, the participants bow to each other, signalling the beginning of combat. With a concurrent rise in intensity of psychophysical parameters, uh, both components begin to close the distance to enter the fray. At the end of each kata, both sides remain vigilant until the uchidachi, usually the senior practitioner, acknowledges defeat. This vigilance is called zanshin. Next, the practitioners withdraw, maintaining zanshin, lowering the intensity with increasing distance. For what it's worth, when both people are doing this correctly, the intensity is almost palpable. Hall states that, in summary, each kata involves three phases. Engagement, controlled combat, and disengagement with decreased intensity. At the end of the session, participants enter a cool-down period in which they bow to each other, to the front, and then to the dojo as they leave the central area. I've been practicing in this way for many years now and never have had have I had this put so succinctly? This is exactly what I experience in my own koryu practice, and to think this links back to warrior pilgrimages and training in 16th century Japan. Amazing stuff. So Hall finally summarizes the purpose of the martial dojo by saying the following. The martial dojo, like the budai dojo, is intended to be a place where the divine is encountered. Body movement and weapons handling, breath control and combative ikkiai and execution of complex strategies transform into divine activity. Under highly stressful conditions, sacred activity of body, speech, mind is repeated in the dojo as the master transmits the secrets of the school to the disciple. Correctly executed, the physical movements of the kata are experienced as the deadly dance of the divinity from which the tradition flows. Breath, the kiai, becomes the voice of the goddess, and the students should manifest the imperturbable, intuitive mind of the combative flow state. The dojo ideally becomes the killing ground of the ego, the birthplace of selflessness and the seat of enlightenment. The disciple seeks to enter an altered state of consciousness and awakens to an understanding of the riddles posed within the kata. End quote. 
I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to create this type of sacred space for serious combatives training. There is a place for banter and chit-chat, but that should only be before and after practice. When I step onto the mat, it is go time. I better be ready both mentally and physically because that is what my teacher expects of me, nothing less. People who have served in the armed forces and seen combat understand this entirely. You are completely dialed into your surroundings and ready to act instantly. The Buddha Dojo and Kata training provides this type of training, even though the rituals and moves appear choreographed to an outsider. Paul goes on to say that this transformation imparts the mental stability necessary to survive protracted warfare by moving in and out of the combative mindset repetitively. The practitioner learns both how to instantaneously enter battle and how to leave it behind. The subtle feature of the training methodology enables return from war to peacetime with psyche intact. End quote. And that is an interesting point. There is so much to glean from these writings. Those of you who have undergone any sort of firearms training will recognize the rituals involved that allow for safe weapon handling and use. But deeper than that, this is the idea that then you take your weapons and dry fire them at each other. Scenario training with simunition is also the same idea as kata. You are performing as close as real as you can, but with the added element of engaging and disengaging your psyche to keep you mentally safe after you leave the kill house or firing range. Now Hall starts to link this old medieval training with modern combatives. He says this, Since 1868, hundreds of Kuryu-Pajutsu traditions have survived. The secrets of psychological armoring for entering, enduring, and leaving combat are still extant in many of those systems. Since a major problem today faced by personnel and military police in related high-stress professions is post-traumatic stress, a brief look at the Kori Pujitsu and PTSD is in order. End quote. Hall mentions that during the Vietnam War, many Marines were taught how to go to war, but not how to leave it behind. He quotes writer and Vietnam veteran Carl Melantes, who says this, Killing someone without splitting oneself from the feelings that the act engenders requires an effort of supreme consciousness that, quite frankly, is beyond most humans. Killing is what warriors do for society, yet when they return home, society doesn't generally acknowledge that the act it asked them to do created a deep split in their psyches, or a psychological and spiritual weight most of them will stumble beneath the rest of their lives. End quote. Paul then says, Ironically, the skills and competitive adaptive traits sought and cultivated by warriors across cultures and throughout history quickly become non-adaptive and endanger both the veteran and civil society when activated in non-combat situations. End quote. Many skills learned in warrior societies, including the Kuru Bajitsu, would be considered antisocial or even criminal in civil society, so the ability to turn this mentality, mentality on and off is paramount. Paul mentions such warrior cultures as the Israelites of the Bible, many Native American tribes and the feudal Japanese warriors had long understood the necessity of ritual preparation for combat along with additional preparation for return to non-combative status. This enabled society to keep going even when its members were warriors. He goes on to say that the neglect of proper body, speech, mind training for combatants results in inadequate preparation for the stress of battle. Neglect of de-escalation of the combative mindset results in conflict in civil society and opens the door to protracted physical and psychological problems in the returning soldier. 
To summarize, there is a valid reason for investigating pre-modern cultures that had successful approaches for handling the return of combatants to civilian life. We can learn a lot about how to preserve the mentality, sorry, the mental stability of soldiers, police, and other first responders in dangerous, highly stressful occupations. That is where Hall's paper ends. Hopefully you took something away from what he had to say. As usual, if you have any comments to share with me about this episode or any of the others, please contact me on Instagram at Podcast or via email at Podcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, here is the quote of the episode. This is from the Warrior Ethos, authored by Stephen Pressfield. Let us be, then, warriors of the heart and enlist in our inner cause the virtues we have acquired through blood and sweat in the sphere of conflict, courage, patience, selflessness, loyalty, fidelity, self-command, respect for elders, love of our comrades and of the enemy, perseverance, cheerfulness in adversity, and a sense of humour, however terse or dark.